It's the NPR Politics Podcast. I'm campaign reporter Asma Khalid. And I'm Ron Elving, editor correspondent. All right, so we are here because we wanted to talk for just a few minutes about the weekend's political news. Donald Trump's campaign events were hounded by protesters all weekend. On Friday night, he canceled a rally in Chicago after clashes broke out between Trump supporters and protesters. So, Ron, what is going on? We're moving into the next phase of what has been a largely angry campaign already on all sides, if you will, of the political debate in America. We're hearing certainly from people who are Donald Trump supporters who are uh, feeling as though their First Amendment rights to free speech were suppressed by what happened in Chicago on Friday night. We're also hearing from a lot of people who have been insulted, perhaps, by Donald Trump or have felt attacked by Donald Trump and have felt disrespected by his supporters. And they're saying, well, what do you expect to have happen when you treat people the way you do or when you tell your rally audience, get them out of here, get those protesters out of here. I wish we could still punch them in the face or I wish we could go back to the days when protesters went out on a stretcher. Mm -hmm. Those kinds of statements, obviously, are provoking some people on the other side. So No matter where you are, no matter which candidate you support, at this particular moment, all of these energies which have been out there and all of this emotion that's been out there seems to have come into a moment of, if not crisis, at at least high visibility. I saw uh, in one of the Sunday talk, Sunday morning talk shows that Donald Trump said that he does not accept responsibility for this violence. I mean, is he sort of in any way um, walking back anything that he said? He has said that he does not condone violence, that he does not urge people to violence, and that he condemns the idea of anyone getting violent at any of these protests. At the same time, he also says that these are not your average people. They are professionally organized protesters, and that many of them were thugs. That was the word that he used. And that they were brought in by an organization that organized them over a period of days and told them to come and disrupt and shut down his rally. And then a day later, he started talking about that being the work of Bernie Sanders' campaign for president and actually sent out a tweet saying, be careful, Bernie, because I may send my supporters to your rallies, which is Mm. (laughs) not a formula for dialing all of this back. But that was what he tweeted out. So, and so how did Bernie Sanders respond Well, he said, look, I didn't have anything to do with this, and my campaign didn't have anything to do with this. I know there were some kids there wearing my T-shirts, but I didn't have anything to do with it, and my campaign didn't. The fact of the matter is, I mean, this is not in dispute, that MoveOn.org and some other organizations in Chicago, local organizations in Chicago, were very interested in bringing out a huge protest to the Donald Trump event in Chicago, which was right there in downtown Chicago, right on the campus of a largely minority university. I was going to say. And, <laughs> and so it was not all that hard to find yeah. a lot of people who were not Donald Trump fans and to get them to stick around on a Friday afternoon. And, you know, I mean, this was a pretty good venue from the standpoint of the protesters. I see. And that these organizations were clearly involved, but the tie between those organizations and Bernie Sanders is only the incidental tie that they also support Bernie Sanders for president. That doesn't make them part of his campaign. Yeah. So, so Ron, here's a a thought I was having this weekend as I was watching all this conversation. And that is that, you know, I think a lot of the analysis seemed to suggest that in some way Trump was the the cause for the violence or that in some way he sparked this outrage. And uh, and in some ways, I, I sort of doubt that analysis. It almost seems more that he is a man of the times and that he has merely tapped into a pre-existing condition that already was in this country. I was meeting with a pollster in, uh, in Florida the other week who mentioned something to me. The idea that pretty much from the, the birth of the U.S., 
uh, up until the last couple of decades, the racial makeup of the U.S. has remained relatively the same. Um, and that has changed dramatically in the last couple of decades in ways that if you were born in the 1940s, the America that you now see is uh, linguistically perhaps different, uh, racially, ethnically, very, very different. It's an America in some ways that perhaps you don't recognize. And I think that's what is a disruptor for a lot of people. They look around and they realize that when Ronald Reagan was president, 90 percent of the presidential vote was cast by white people, Anglos, and that now it's down to about 70 percent and it's heading downward and there are 50,000 new American-born U.S. citizens who are qualifying to vote, turning 18 every month, who are Hispanic. But Donald Trump himself has said it's economics. It's people's insecurity that they have lost jobs because of bad trade deals in Donald Trump's estimation. They have uh, seen their, their wages go down because people have come into this country from other countries who will work for less. These are Donald Trump themes. And he's been striking those themes and saying that's why people are angry enough to be emotional. And when people get emotional, sometimes they can a, be provoked. Is that not a similar argument to the, uh, the similar policy argument to what we hear on the Sanders side, but not perhaps with uh, some of the violence we saw on Friday? We're blaming different. We're blaming different people. Donald Trump is looking at trade deals, bad leadership on the part of political leaders. He's looking at bad immigration policy from his point of view and saying we're bringing in too many people willing to work for low wages. Then you have Bernie Sanders on the other hand, who is saying no, it's Wall Street, and it's the income inequality that comes from our rigged economy. Those are his words, rigged economy, from a Wall Street whose business model is fraud. Those are his words. And ultimately from a campaign finance system that is corrupt. Those are, again, his words. And he says all of those things put together make people feel like the American dream is hobbled by a rigged economy, a Wall Street that's based on fraud, and a corrupt political system. So... I just, I'm curious about this. I mean, I, I feel like I've heard Bernie talk so much about NAFTA and trade arguments in very Trump ways. It almost feels like they are talking about the same problem now. There is a point of agreement. Uh, I don't really want to call it a point of agreement, but there is a, a point of nexus, if you will, between Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump on certain issues that certain kinds of people have been ignored in the United States and that there has not been enough attention paid to the working class American in the trade deals that we do with other countries where workers will work for less. And you can certainly demonstrate that certain numbers of jobs have come to the United States because of those trade deals and oftentimes better paying jobs. But you can also demonstrate that some lesser paying jobs, which don't require college degrees or high technical skills, have been lost to other countries where that kind of work can be done more cheaply. Mexico is an example. China is an example. But there are many, many others. So, yes, that is a point where there is overlap between Sanders and Trump. All right. Um, so, Ron, one thing that was interesting is that I think, you know, sometimes during this campaign, Trump's Republican rivals have offered kind of muted responses to different statements that he's made. But after Friday night, we heard some loud condemnations across the board. So can you kind of walk us through how his Republican rivals responded? The Republican rivals, you understand, are really back on their heels in a lot of respects because Donald Trump has been carrying so much before him. And in addition to that, of course, you have this repeated showing of these incidents that has really gotten a lot of people upset. And so as a result, people like Ted Cruz came out and said, it starts at the top. Mm -hmm. The campaign has to be responsible for what happens at its rallies. And that, of course, was a but shot at Trump. At the end of the day, in any campaign, responsibility starts at the top. And it is not beneficial when you have a presidential candidate like Donald Trump telling his supporters, punch that guy in the face. 
Marco Rubio said it was getting harder every day to stand by the thought of supporting Donald Trump if he is the nominee. Support him as the nominee if he's the nominee? I don't know. I mean, I already talked about the fact that I think Hillary Clinton would be terrible for this country, but the fact that you're even asking me that question, uh, I still, at this moment, continue to intend to support the Republican nominee, but getting harder every day. And what about Ohio Governor John Kasich? I mean, he's been seemingly running kind of neck and neck with Trump in Ohio. Is that right? Yes. And over the weekend, he also, uh, I got the sense, seemed very troubled by what happened. Over the weekend, John Kasich said, Donald Trump has created a toxic environment. And a toxic environment has allowed his supporters and those who sometimes seek confrontation to come together in violence. There is no place for this. That's so interesting no because Kasich is the one who, you know, in, in all these debates seems to be almost sort of aloof while the rest of them battle things out. So to hear him actually engage and, and confront, I guess, Donald Trump in, in a way is kind of telling. All of the Republican candidates up to this point in the campaign have seemed to want to keep their options open with respect to Donald Trump and, most importantly, his supporters. In theory, if Donald Trump were not going to be the nominee for whatever reason, these other candidates would like his supporters to come their way, or at least some substantial portion of them, because that's where a lot of the vote is. That's where the plurality of the Republican vote has been thus far in February and March. It's been with Donald Trump. So they all, at some point or another, they all want to be able to appeal to those voters. Plus, let's also bear in mind, if Donald Trump is the nominee, he needs a running mate. Mm. And both Marco Rubio and John Kasich would have been ideal candidates to be his running mate because Rubio brings perhaps the state of Florida, the biggest swing state in the country, and John Kasich brings the state of Ohio, the second most important swing state in the country. So either one of those would have been what you would call the ideal vice presidential nominee for Donald Trump, and they have been very loath to kill that prospect. Not that they really want that necessarily, or that's what they're after, but as a fallback, as a consolation. Consider, you're Marco Rubio, you're out of the Senate at the end of this year. Yeah. You're without a job if you're yep. not going to be president of the United States. So, hey, maybe vice president wouldn't be so bad. But in the last few days, it's gotten rougher and both Kasich and Rubio have felt compelled to say the kinds of things about Donald Trump that heretofore they have not said and which would seem to make it extremely difficult for them to be on the ticket with him. All right. And what about on the Democratic side? I mean, obviously, Hillary Clinton and, and Bernie Sanders, it seems like they both uh, denounced Trump and, and this violence. And I heard our, our colleague, Scott Detrow, who's been in Ohio o over the weekend, I heard him kind of reference the fact that it seemed like Hillary Clinton was using a new line against Trump. Donald Trump is running a cynical campaign of hate and fear for one reason, to get votes. He's encouraging violence and chaos to get votes. So, I mean, it almost sounded like she was using Donald Trump as a get-out-the-vote tool. If you don't want Donald Trump to go on doing what I'm telling you Donald Trump is doing, then vote for me. Yeah. <laughs> Not just vote for somebody other than Donald Trump, but vote for me. That's basically what all the candidates did this weekend. John Kasich, Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders all said, see, I've been telling you, watch out for that Donald Trump guy, and now you see why. Because his persona is somehow and his campaign style are somehow responsible for things having gotten out of hand. So vote for me. Mm -hmm. Everybody's using these ugly incidents as a goad to their own supporters, 
course, and as an outreach to people who might have been trying to decide whom to vote for. I mean, how effective of a campaign strategy is that at, at this point, too? I mean, we're approaching, you know, a series of big contests on March 15th. So many delegates on the Republican side have already been handed out. It's a desperate moment in this campaign, March 15th is. Marco Rubio, as I mentioned, on the ropes in Florida. John Kasich absolutely has to win Ohio, or there's really no rationale for his campaign to go forward. Ted Cruz, if he does not get any kind of standing, doesn't win any states, doesn't finish a strong second in any of those states, he's really consigned to being, at this point, just that last man standing between Donald Trump and the nomination. Maybe he still has a chance if he's the only man standing against Donald Trump to divide the vote with him in big states that are coming. It's hard to see him beating Donald Trump in New York. It's hard to see him beating Donald Trump in California. Maybe that could happen. But that's why it's desperate for all these Republican candidates. Meanwhile, on the Democratic side, a race that had looked really settled Mm -hmm. not too long ago was unsettled by Michigan. Yeah. Because if Bernie Sanders can defy 10 or 20 point leads for Hillary in the polls, and win. Could he do it again? Right? Well, it looks like he might very well do it again. In fact, in her home state of Illinois right now, uh, polls show it closing up to some polls are showing him slightly ahead. In Ohio, uh, it's also quite close. Well, it's not as close as you would expect it to be, given the demographics of Ohio, which look very more favorable. Right? Similar yeah. to Michigan, but even more favorable to Sanders because there's a smaller African-American percentage statewide. It's more like national. Uh, it all depends on who turns out to vote. It always does. But let's put it this way. It's gotten tense on the Democratic side because the Hillary forces, even though they expect to increase their delegate lead as they do every week, they don't want another week, two weeks, three weeks of stories about how Bernie Sanders is winning states she was supposed to win. Mm. So even if she wins Florida, North Carolina, if she's splitting the other three states, that's going to look like the momentum is really shifted away. Yeah, Yeah, the optics are terrible. And at the very least, it makes her look like a weak nominee. At the worst, it questions whether or not she should even be the nominee. All right. Well, we promised a quick take, so we'll stop it there. Uh, Make sure you tune in to elections.npr.org for coverage of tomorrow night's primaries. That starts at 8 p.m., again, on elections.npr.org. While you're at it, sign up for our NPR Politics newsletter. And be sure to refresh your podcast feed Wednesday morning for an episode on the results of Tuesday's voting. I'm Asma Khalid, one of the campaign reporters here at NPR. I'm Ron Elving, editor-correspondent. And thanks for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. 